Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is April 19th. It, we're recording this on the 17th as my cat just walks. Oh, your cat is so cute. Not really that cute. Oh. She's so old. She ridiculous. looks really good on video. <laughs> <laughs> the voice you hear is Tammy Kim, my co-host. Um, today AJ. we have a we have a good episode. Um, we have an episode. I think that it's timely. You know, it, it is about the Chicago mayoral election that just took place, and our guest is Alex Hahn. Alex is the executive director of In These Times and a longtime Chicago-based union organizer. He's also the former vice president of SEIU Healthcare Illinois in Indiana and was Midwest political director for Bernie 2020. And what we talked about with Alex was just sort of how this all happened, right, both on the ground, but also from 30,000 feet in the sky, right? Like, what were the issues and how did this sort of unexpected and honestly somewhat thrilling victory take place? Um it was between Brandon Johnson, who is a, a progressive candidate who was down in the polls and who I think most people thought was going to lose against Paul Vallis, who was much more of the sort of law and order um, and very much aligned with sort of school privatization. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and in that way, it was a interesting ideological election totally. because it was like, here's the two choices you have in America <laughs> yeah. now. <laughs> right. It was pretty stark. Yeah. Right, right. And so it wasn't like two people running who were basically the same and one was like, well, you know, this scandal happened. That that that's what <laughs> that's what swung it. It was like it was two people with two different visions of the world and you know, they competed and one of them won. So that's the conversation that we have coming up. Uh Tammy, how how have you been? I'm good. I have been traveling a lot, but I'm like home for a little bit and it feels really good and um, we had this heat wave here, Jay. Did you see? It felt like it was like 90 degrees. I just saw people complaining about it on Twitter, which, you know, I didn't care about. I don't yeah. know. People in New York it complaining was, about it stuff. Like, it, it was like that, mo you know, that moment when everyone comes out in their like bikinis and shorts and stuff. It was like that. This week. Bikinis. Like, I feel like there's the always this moment in the spring where like it goes above 70 and then everyone in the park is wearing a bikini or something. Oh, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. You know what I mean? I know it was what like you're talking that. about. Yeah. 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 It was that moment. We had that in, at Bowdoin, you know, which is strangely. Oh, I bet especially up there. Yeah, but it wasn't like the. It, it did not take ninety degrees to get people out. Sixty like, degrees. One, no, it was like forty-five. <laughs> <laughs> the main winter. After, yeah, after the winter, like one day in April, it would get to like forty-five, and everyone would be wearing shorts and sitting out on the quad in like a puddle of slush and and mud um so bad and it was a great day you know like it was a very happy day <laughs> everyone would be drinking beer you know um during the day because it was so nice out and then the next day it would freeze back over or whatever and everyone would be miserable again but yeah i know the day you're talking about <laughs> yes, it's like it the that. great unveiling where you know exactly people, like you're blinded by the by the by the paleness of people's thighs and stuff like that you're just because <laughs> nobody has <laughs> Nobody's gotten a tan. <laughs> they are just like out, like, you know, like reflecting sunlight off their skin because totally. nobody has seen any type of, uh, we don't have that problem here really. But, you know, I had like a period, you know, because it rained for three months and I, I had know. a period moment where I looked in the mirror and I was like, I am so pale <laughs> because I wasn't spending like six hours outside, but that's rectified itself here in the last And you get so dark. Yeah. 
Did you, um, are you feeling better? What's going on with your COVID, your family's COVID? I'm fine. We're all fine. Okay. You know, we're just kind of, we're in the end of our bunkering down type of period. I think sometime this I'm week glad. we'll re-enter the world. But um, yeah, there was, uh, I don't know, COVID. I, I think it's, they're like, it's just like a miserable experience, you know? I recommend yeah. people not I to agree. get COVID. Yeah. yeah. That would be my recommendation. Uh, it was... Strong I, tip. Yeah, and there are like some weird symptoms I had, you know, like I kind of like broke out in a rash at some point. Oh, really? I yeah. can't smell anything, which is you interesting. You sound congested still. I'm a little congested, but um, I think that's actually from allergies, oh. but um, I literally can't smell a thing, which is a very strange experience, but, uh, you know, hopefully that'll come back at some yeah, point. Yeah, I hope but, it, I hope you um, feel better. The rest of my family had much more mild symptoms than me, and uh, I'm now basically almost testing negative, and so I think I'll be – I'm fine. Okay, uh, okay. Everything's fine. I think as far as COVID goes, where your entire family gets infected, um, it was a relatively easy experience that I'm definitely not going to complain about given you know what other people went through. Yeah, um, sure. But, you know, it's like more than anything is just inconvenient, which, uh, you know, is not something that one should complain about, you know, and if one does, they should be rightfully mocked for it. So, um, yeah, no complaints here. I'm just like, um, you saw Andy, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Andy came into Berkeley. Yeah. 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 Um, we had lunch outside outside and, um, yeah. How's he doing? He looked great. You look great. Yeah. I had to leave early because um, I had like a family emergency, not emergency, but like a family thing pop up where I had to go home and watch one of the kids for a little bit, but he okay. was doing well. Well, we should bring him and, back on sometime soon. It's been a minute. Yeah. Maybe talk about the NBA playoffs or something. He texted me this <laughs> morning. He's like, who do you think's going to win? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, let's, let's get, right into our conversation with Alex. We didn't just talk about Chicago and the mayoral election. We talked about mm-hmm. in these times and left media a little bit and about what people should do uh, or he, not should, you know, what people might do or what, how things might change a little bit now that Bernie is probably no longer going to be the center <laughs> of it. Although who knows who would you want to run Tammy from that you would accept as being like from the left if it wasn't. I I think about this every day and there is just like, I think, I mean, I actually, I think our conversation with Alex accurately reflects this thing, which is that all the energy really seems local and state regional right now. I can't, I mean, on the national stage, there are really very few contenders. Well, the only, the obvious answer is AOC, right? Yeah, but not now. I mean, someday. Right, right. That's what I mean. You know? Oh, oh so you grooming, think there's a someday there? Just grooming for the future. Yeah. Well, what do you think? Like, I don't know. I am interested in that. Like, because my thought is just that, like, I don't, I think that, that it's almost like AOC could have run two years ago or something and had a lot of traction, but now it might be harder. Like, what would improve with AOC where you felt, feel like, no, not, I'm not, I'm not talking about her as a politician, no, I know, her I as know. a person. Like, the right? environment like, like, for her. Right, right. Yeah. Like, what, like, how could she become more of a viable candidate than she 
than she has been, right? Like, that's a question I don't really understand with her, which is just like, and I don't even know if AOC wants to run for president. I assume she does because I just think she's, you know, she's someone who ran for office and they're very ambitious people. Ambition (laughs) is not a political thing, right? Like people who run for office at some point think they think, I'm sure at least think about becoming president senator or something (laughs) right 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 i mean like barbara lee is running for senate in in her 70s exactly (laughs) i love barbara lee and that race is so interesting i think that there's like some part of it where i'm like and i i really reject everybody getting mad because they're like she's too old look at fine are they saying that yeah oh yeah that's like the that's that's what it is that that's basically been the prevailing argument against her, which is that she's too old. That you know? is so irritating and sexist. I find that so irritating. It's, it's so just sexist. Like, all right, I mean, look, it's one thing for we do need fewer Nancy. old people involved in leadership, but like, <laughs> given the state of affairs, right? And Adam Schiff is also pretty old. I know. You know, like that's yeah. the thing that I keep going back to, which is just yeah. like, do you understand the human brain and, and aging well enough to say that like Adam Schiff, like, I don't know how old, I think he's like 67 yeah. or something like that, I mean, right? I thought he was in his 70s um, too. That's funny. Is so much different than Barbara Lee, who was in her <laughs> 70s, right? Like, you know, some people live to n- go to 90 and they're sharp as a tack and some people start, you know, going through... uh you know, having signs of dementia or whatever when they're in their 50s, yeah, right? Like, like, like it's not like you can say definitively who's going to do that or who is not. And, like, it does seem very misogynist to just say, because Feinstein did, this other mm-hmm. woman is too, you know? Like, if it, like, and, and also, like, it's just bad luck for Barbara Lee that Feinstein is is sort of refusing to step down, you know, where it's just like she makes it so much she of an issue. She's so that irresponsible, I think, at this point. It's really I know. Well, Nancy Pelosi anyway. came out and said that anyone who criticizes her as being uh, sexist, and I was just like, I was like, come on, you know, it's too close to home. wait why are we talking about barbara lee oh because um (laughs) because i was gonna say like politicians are ambitious right like the other side of me is just like barbara lee why are you running running like you're a god here in the east bay you know like uh like barbara lee will never lose your time you know you'll never lose an election right Right. um she's been in that office since the 90s right or since the late Mm -hmm. 90s and uh i don't think that like i just can't even imagine what would have to happen to have to happen for her to lose her congressional seat here now the senate is more power obviously right right, in some sorts of ways but like why do you want to do that right now (laughs) you know um and then, of course, on the other side, like on the other side, you have people who you totally understand why they want to do it, like Katie Porter or or Schiff, where, you know, these are people who are very ambitious people. And so is Barbara Lee. And, you know, I just assume that every politician is the same way. I assume AOC yeah. is the same way and that all these people eventually can envision themselves running for president. But um, yeah, what would have to change? Yeah. Do you think? Like what what is the upside here? I don't want to put it in sports terms, you know, but like what what would. Well, how would AOC sort of become yeah, a better candidate than she was? I mean, I think, I think it's hard. It seems hard at this point to go from a representative to a president because I think it's just hard to distinguish yourself, like in terms of the stuff that you actually do day to day, the legislation and things like that. Like, what kind of package or, you know, sort of 
what I mean, I think the Green New Deal, something like that is the thing that, you know, she wants to have as her legacy. Like there have to be some key pieces that I think that people can point to just like on the nuts and bolts. And then I think like the image stuff is about, you know, is somebody like Bernie going to start really like basically designating the chosen one and backing that person and really pushing them out, you know, because that, that, right. that is his last thing that he needs to do. If he's not going right. to continue running, right? He has to basically have a very clear succession plan that he broadcasts to the world. Yeah, nobody has sort of emerged organically. Yeah. I think some of that does have to do with gender and race because so yeah. many of the people who identify as being sort of on the left with him right, are either minorities or they're women or they're minority women. And that I think that they seem probably less electable to the lay person and maybe they are less electable because we live in America, you know, but like Rashida Tlaib or, um, or, uh, Ilhan Omar, the, you know, AOC, you know, it's hard to see them running for president. And so then like, is the real question going to be like, who's the next white dude who's going to be sort of of the left, um, who is young. And that person absolutely has not, emerged yet i don't even know who the candidates would be you know like who are the who are the candidates (laughs) pete Buttigieg is gonna appoint himself to be the left liberal (laughs) consensus (laughs) candidate for our times (laughs) yeah he's like listen i've been reading a lot of my dad's old work and it you know it really sort of changed my it changed my perspective on things but like that in absence (laughs) of that it's it's kind of difficult and i don't look i am definitely not saying it needs to be a white dude but I think that that is why the question exists, no, right? I know, because yeah. the white dude does not exist. It's true. Um, I personally prefer not be like just a you know a, a white dude, but um, you know I don't really care either way. I just wish there was someone some good, sort of logical alternative. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we talk about these things and more with Alex. <laughs> so here is our conversation. <laughs> So, Alex, welcome to the show. Um, how are you doing today? I'm feeling pretty good, Jay. How are you? Good. Thank you for coming on. I think this is a very... <laughs> I don't know. This is a topic I wanted to talk about since it happened. And I know that you have like a pretty... You've had like a front row seat for a lot of this, right? Like uh, you wrote a piece in, in these times recently where you talked about the first time you met Brandon Johnson. Can you just mm-hmm. can you just tell us about that? Let's let, why don't we start right there? Like, what's the first time you met this candidate? I, not candidate, you know, I, the new mayor. What's the dude? I think I think the first time I met Brandon um, was during you know after the after um, rank and file caucus uh, took over the Chicago Teachers Union, um, kind of a fighting caucus after a long time where the teachers union leadership in Chicago. Um, had really been conceding um, to the privatizers. So that was in 2010 when Karen Lewis um, took over. One of the things they instituted was a summer organizing institute where they were bringing teachers in uh, to do organizing training. So Brandon was in the first class of that. And I think that was the summer of 2011. Um, So that would have been the first time I met him. 12 years ago. Wow. That's a very long time. And so... um, yeah, I mean, one of the, the way I wanted to start out this conversation was with one observation, and then I think we can go from there, which is that 
I write quite a bit about education. It's an interesting topic to write a lot about because it's not something that gets that much traction, you know, like it can be center in like culture wars or stuff like that. But if you actually just sort of write about education and politics outside of like whatever Ron DeSantis is doing or these sort of like things that are almost orthogonal, I don't even know if that's the right word, but somewhat tertiary to the actual education debate and the actual education politics debate, like, you know, it's not great. And it's the same thing for politics, I think, for politicians running on like education platforms. Like there's that wonderful moment in The Wire when Carcetti is talking to the other guy, his friend, who's also thinking about running for mayor. And the guy's like, uh, I'm going to run on education. And Carcetti's kind of like, <laughs> you know, like, good luck with that one. Right. And so it doesn't really occupy that central of a place in the political landscape, except it seems like in Chicago, where it has become it is sort of been the center of of all the politics for the past what i don't know how many years now um and i i just want a dozen years yeah right i wanted to ask you like how did that come about right like how does how does chicago become the city where education teachers unions like those types of questions become so central to every type of debate that happens politically not just locally i don't know what it's like locally because i don't live there but certainly as a national you know as somebody who's observing from the outside that's what it seems like it seems like there's one issue there well, I'm sure there are many, right? But that the central issue all gets sort of funneled through this through education and the teachers union. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to think about Chicago as being really ground zero for an experiment um, in neoliberal education and privatization, uh, you know, quote unquote, education reform. And I do think that this election in some ways, you know, Paul Vallis was a really central figure in that um, as the first CEO of the Chicago Public Schools, um, right, when mayoral <laughs> control came in, um, when uh, Vallis was, you know, again, the first person not to have the title of superintendent, um, but of CEO uh, back in the 90s, um, and really uh, coming in to, to assert, you know, a much broader neoliberal agenda, um, and using education as kind of, you know, in some ways, an opportunistic place um, to, to advance that um, kind of fight. Um, so I do think, you know, it's, it's, it's always played a central role, you know, Chicago, it's, it's interesting to me, and this can play out in multiple different ways, but, you know, Chicago teachers union is local one of the American Federation of teachers. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's true that in the labor movement, Chicago actually has a lot of, it's, it's the cradle of a lot of organizing and industrial organizing. Um, but I think all of these things kind of combine to, to make it, uh, feel like it's a, you know, in Chicago, it's a much more central question. Um, And I think when we think about, you know, the other forces that can shape a local economy, um, you know, Chicago is obviously the third biggest city in the country, um, but it's the one that's in the middle. Um, And it's an economy that functions differently than the two biggest cities, than New York City and Los Angeles, which are really, um, I think, capitals of the global economy in a different way. Um, and so Chicago, you know, it's very much, you know, it's a, it's a diverse city. You know, I, I hope this isn't interpreted the wrong way, but, you know, sometimes I think about it as kind of like the biggest and greatest and most important American city. You know, New York City is the capital of global finance. Los Angeles is a, is a part of the Pacific Rim economically um, in a lot of ways. And, and Chicago is a place, you know, where the economy has been slaughterhouses and steel mills and, you know, kind of the core and center um, of like a productive economy for the last 150 years. Um, 
So I went a little mm. further afield. Um, oh, yeah, that's, you know, okay. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It strikes me too that like, I don't know the, it, it like Vallis is, posture in the campaign was so, I guess, like presumptuous or arrogant. And it, it it was kind of striking. I mean, he basically didn't think Chicagoans would care that he had basically made his money off of the privatization of the economy and was willing, or sorry, of education and was willing to go head to head with Johnson. And I'm curious, like where you think that comes from um, there. I know there is like a little bit of a history of kind of underestimating the influence of the Chicago Teachers Union, but it seemed... I don't know. Looking back, I know Johnson was a long shot candidate, but it almost seems now preordained or that it was so actually um, <laughs> just completely kind of like arrogant and strange that Vellis would make that assumption, given where we are with labor right now. So where does that that arrogance come from? I mean, I, th- I think there's no other way to function if you're playing that role that Vallis <laughs> did. If you look at, you know, if you look at our prior, you know, several mayors, if you look at daily to Rahm Emanuel to, frankly, Lori Lightfoot. Um, I think that mm-hmm. same kind of presumptuousness exists. Um, it just was met with enough force to be able to really kind of um, put the lie to that. And I think that's for a number of different reasons, you know. Um, but Paul Vallis was really, you know, again, like a central figure. Um, it's certainly not a debate where there's, you know, universal revulsion for him. Um, it was not, you know, a landslide mm-hmm. of an election. Um, but I do think there's no other way if, you know, if I was telling his campaign how to do it, I don't know that I would have told them <laughs> to do anything any different. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that question is interesting to me just because, you know, like what, well, in your mind, what did this sort of, you have Johnson who is by most betting markets or whatever. I don't really, whatever you want to say, even pundits, he, they think he's a, that he's probably not going to beat Vallis, right? Yeah. Like when, after the, uh, after the sort of primary and after this runoff is declared. And that, you know, even for me, it just seemed difficult not knowing much about it, but just looking at what the sort of vote was, right? And that, that the, whatever he had to overcome. And then also like this idea that, you know, on the national scene, like, hey, you know, people are tired of crime or whatever, and they're just going to vote for this guy, right? Um, and that it did seem like Johnson's politics were to the left and that it would be difficult for, now he might be able to win some sort of, you know, more competitive contested type of thing where you eke out like a small plurality or something like that, but it's like a head to head type of thing. And he's far to the left. He seemed far to the left of somebody like Karen Bass, for example, right in Los Angeles, where you have similar dynamic where you have like a black progressive running against like a white guy who is like preaching law and order and everything like that. Right. And that you have, but Karen Bass is like not really of the left at all. Right. Karen Bass, like a career politician. She used and to so, be, but yeah. Right, right, right. But like, you know, like, I mean, she survives in Los Angeles city politics for that long for a reason. Sure. Right. And so it, it seemed difficult to me or like, and so the result was very, I mean, I was, I was happy about it, but I was, you know, I was very surprised about it. And so like, I think that in some of the pieces that you've written, or, or the way or things that I've seen you say, you know, you sort of give a breakdown of it. And so like for, you know, our listeners who haven't read that, like, you know, like, how did this happen? How does how does this guy win this election? Well, I, to, to relate it to Karen Bass, I do think like there is a similarity in that Karen is of a prior generation 
of kind of an or a, a movement around community organizing. Right. Um, and so I think there's a connectivity there. Um, I think that one of the biggest differences here is that like Brandon Johnson's campaign really came out of a decade plus of really conscious movement building and development um, in Chicago, uh, where the teachers union has been one of the leaders, but certainly not the center or the sole leader in that. It's been a broader movement for education justice. It's involved my old union, SEIU Healthcare, um, Illinois. Um, it's involved a lot of organizers who've been fighting for affordable housing and for tenants' rights. It's, in, it's involved, you know, the kind of new abolitionist movement that has really risen um, in part in Chicago um, over the last 10 or 15 years. And I think part of it is about tying together the strands of that movement and then that movement being really practical about really wanting to seize any opportunities that arose to actually win power. Um, and I think that, like, when I say it out loud, it sounds a little bit ridiculous, honestly, um, but that's the core of what happened. Um, and I think Brandon was somebody who was honestly really willing to put himself out there um, to lead right now in a really difficult time. Well, can you give us an example of something like a bit more specific about like, you know, like how, how does that look? Because I think that one of the things that happens, I think on the left from time to time is that like we say, move in politics or we say, um, this <laughs> is like, a victory, like this is a victory <laughs> of organizing. And I will say that like, I think it's a shorthand and I don't think that the people who say it are in any sort of way doing it to obfuscate, but sometimes like it's just such a broad term (laughs) (laughs) and um like you have an uh not you but like one you know it seems like there is a you know there's like almost a opportunity for instruction at this point because because this is such a because it was an unexpected victory right i mean like you said it's the third biggest city in the country um this is not a small job every single mayor of chicago is actually weirdly more of a celebrity than the mayor of any other city, I would say, from Rahm Emanuel to Lori Lightfoot onward, right? Like, at least the last two have been. I mean, like, far yeah, more even famous, going back right? to, to Richard Daly, going back to right, Old right. Washington. Yeah, yeah. right. I mean, just to, like, pick up on that a little bit, I mean, Alex, maybe one of the things you could talk about is the construction of Working Families United and how that's United Working Families. Oh, sorry, yeah. United Working Families. Working Families yeah. United I, is another organization. Yeah. Very confusing. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, um, all, they're it's all, word, it's <laughs> no, all the just, same. Yeah, words, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll give you one little internal thing yeah. is when, when um, I, I wanted to name it Working Families United in part because the acronym <laughs> would have been Working WFU. FU. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, WFU, but I was overruled um, in that many years ago. I mean, I, yeah, it's 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 a little bit hard to parse out, and I think part of the challenge and something I've been thinking about is how to actually kind of backfill some of that story, how to do that in a useful way um, for people around the country, for people in Chicago who haven't been paying that close attention, um, because I don't think, you know, there are obviously unique elements. Um, there's a set of kind of timing and circumstance, um, but a lot of that I think for kind of left politics, for movement building is really, again, being in a position to take advantage of what's happening. It's something we've seen the right wing do time and time again. Um, It's something we frankly see them, I think, stumbling on now um, as they've centered, you know, their issues on things that people don't really think of as central issues, you know. 
Um, like so it, Disney so, movies, yeah. Right, right. Um, and it's still, I mean, it's kind of terrifying that it still carries the weight that it does. But at the end of the day, it seems pretty clear that like voters by and large are not really that worried um, about trans kids as a threat to them, you know, yeah, and their existence. Yeah. Um, and we saw that in school board races here in Illinois and across the country um, this month as well, um, where, you know, a big majority of, of those who are running on those issues ended up losing. Um, I, I do think there is something too. So United Working Families um, is an independent political organization that was formed just under 10 years ago. It was launched in 2014. And it really came out of years of joint work between a set of different organizations that include the Chicago Teachers Union, SEIU Healthcare Illinois in Indiana, um, a group called Grassroots Illinois Action, that's kind of a coalition of community organizations, neighborhood-based and issue-based organizing, um, as well as Action Now, um, which is a community organization with a base on the south and west sides of Chicago, um, in Black Chicago. And so these four organizations had been working together, like in any big city, you have, you know, this kind of like universe, this ecosystem um, of different organizations that work together. Uh, You have, you know, 20 different organizations that have like 40 different coalitions between them, (laughs) you know, to work on all of these different individual pieces of legislation or policy um, or elections. And part of what we identified um, was really that we needed to think about our politics in a different way. And part of that was to think about how would we build something that looks and feels and acts like a political party, in particular because in Chicago, for our city elections, they are nonpartisan elections. And so we've seen also the fruit of having a process that allows for a runoff, right? You have an initial election. If no candidate gets over 50%, then the top two go to a runoff. Um, And so that kind of dynamic, I think, is also like a critical thing to think about. Like what is the mechanic? What are the mechanics um, of the elections? Mm -hmm. And how do organizations and people on the left, those who can actually organize on the ground, take advantage um, of those kind of dynamics. Um, guys, so it was really started. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Tim. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say like, were you guys also interested specifically in like developing a bench of union members and union leaders to enter politics? Like was that? Yeah. Part of it was strategy? really, yeah. Really thinking about rank and file leaders and organizers from our organization. So yeah. we launched out in 2014, uh, the 20, you know, between, I think the 2015 city elections and probably, you know, last year's, um, last year's uh, midterms in the state legislative and congressional, um, you know, we put in United Working Families, uh, something like 10 members of the Chicago City Council were elected, um, I want to say in the range of 10 members of the state legislature. Um, and then last year, we put one of our members, um, a longtime housing advocate and organizer, Delia Ramirez, um, into mm-hmm. Congress as the representative for Illinois' 3rd District. So a lot of that really was intentionally building, um, it, building that bench to be able to advance policy you know, on the local level to be linked up with organizing, um, but to be in a position when opportunity arose um, mm. to to win bigger fights. I want to talk a bit about the teachers union specifically, right? Because I think that um, for listeners who are not familiar, this is a somewhat unusually strong teachers union in some ways, and then in some ways a very embattled teachers union in terms of how it, you know, just how central it is to almost all discourse within that city. Um, I spent 
I don't know, five days once sitting in a hotel in Chicago waiting for Karen Lewis to do an interview. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like, I I don't know why, I I felt like kind of, you know, like I felt like Jonah and Veep where I just keep getting pushed pushed back, you know? (laughs) Do you want to say who she is briefly, Jay? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, she's a former, um, she's a former head of the Chicago Teachers Union. And, um, and it was like funny because well, two things are happening. The first is that we were sitting right across the street from like the Trump Hotel, you know, in the hotel across the river. And so every, I was just Lord. sitting in my hotel room staring at this gigantic Trump sign. And then my producer would call and be like, okay, three hours we're going to go. And then it was like, it lasted five days. And so I during that time, I learned a lot about the Chicago <laughs> When I arrived in Chicago, I was very unprepared. And by the end, I like knew everything because I was so bored or I was just like, I was, it would have been the worst interview ever because I would have been so overprepared. You know, I, every question would have been like nine minutes of me proving how much I knew now. <laughs> but, um, you know, like... What year I, was this, Jay? Yeah, oh, man, I don't remember. I think it was 2015 or something uh-huh. like that, or maybe 2016. Um, it was right around the election. Uh, maybe... This is like after maybe the Maybe at the election. Maybe right before the election, because I think... Or like maybe a few months before. I don't remember. Um, it was whenever the show I was working on at the time premiered, and I don't remember what that was. But... Um, you know, like this is a union that does not just talk about education, but, you know, has suggestions on immigration policy. It has suggestions on all sorts of things, right? Um, the contribution even to like to Brandon Johnson's mayoral campaign is not like $400,000. It was like $3.2 million, I believe, right? And so like this is like a big mover and shaker in politics in that city um well first i want to ask you know like well you know like how how did this kind of active union right where it is goes well beyond what people think many people might think is like even like quote unquote appropriate or whatever like what what is some of the history of that like how, how do they get to this point and then if you delineate a little bit like what their role is here right like like how how do they influence the the politics of a of a city because and, and I'll tell you the reason why I'm asking after yeah go ahead. Well, I think there's like there's a there's a long arc of history that goes back a hundred years um, to when the Chicago Teachers Union um, about a hundred years ago was actually like advancing a fight for progressive taxation in the city of Chicago in order to fully fund schools. So this has been it's kind of a ongoing fight and an ongoing. Um, you know, I think this is true in a lot of public education. Like we have this, um, we have something that is seen as like, in some ways, as an equalizer, this kind of like engine of democracy um, that's never, you know, like quite fulfilled um, what it needs to do to create that. I think in more recent years, you know, I think back uh, about 20 years um, to being in front of the Board of Education in Chicago with a group of union leaders and community activists. Now, the Chicago Teachers Union was actually not present at this action. It was like a time when um, mm-hmm. we used to have to camp out overnight at the Board of Education for people to be able to get a speaking spot in public <laughs> comment at wow. the Board of Ed. Like, this is the level of democracy. 
that's existed in education. And I remember this was organized actually by SEIU Local 73, which is a really critical um, union player in this, which uh, represents a lot of uh, teacher aides and support staff in the public schools. It was organized by them and a coalition of community organizations. Um, But I remember in some of those fights 20 years ago, Um, that really some of those organizers who are working with parents, um, working in black and brown communities, um, working to defend public schools against those rounds of school closings and and privatization and charterization, were connecting with a set of rank-and-file teachers who did not feel represented in their union. And so that that group of teachers ended up being the, the core of a caucus that they formed called CORE, which stands for the Caucus of Rank and File Educators. Um, which was launched in 2008 and relatively quickly decided that they would put up a slate for election in 2010 in the internal elections um, in the Chicago Teachers Union um, to fight an existing kind of leadership there that had really rolled over um, for daily um, and really was putting teachers in a bad position. Um, That was where Karen came in. 2010 Mm -hmm. was when Karen and that slate were elected. And I do think there's something really, you know, part of what's hard to place about what's happened in Chicago is there are a set of things that really don't exist anywhere else. Um, I do think the Chicago Teachers Union is, in a lot of ways, the most deeply democratic um, union of its size. Um, it's managed to keep that character for over a decade. A little bit of what you said, Jay, around kind of its positions on immigration issues, other sets of issues. A lot of that comes from giving members control and say over how the union functions. There's this, you know, there's an environmental justice committee. Um, there's a housing committee. Um, you know, there's all of these different groupings of rank and file teachers who are really empowered um, to take action in different ways and to help lead that union in different directions. So it's something that's really evolved um, over the last 12 or 13 years. How divisive is it, uh, you know, in terms of, not divisive in terms of their actions, right? But how polarizes opinion in Chicago about the CTU? Because, uh, you know, um, obviously it's not unpopular enough where a candidate coming out of CTU can't become mayor, right? Like, so like any idea that like, oh, everybody hates this thing is, is like, you know, just, I mean, like, okay, well then how do you prove that? But, you know, like how, how central is it within the political discourse in Chicago? Cause that is one of the unique things that I've observed at least, right. Which is just like, like we said at the outset, like it just seems to be so central um, in any type of political conversation. Like even not just because of this, but, you know, like even even during Lori Lightfoot, Rob Emanuel, obviously, like, you know, like all, all these types of things that the, it, the, it always sort of centered back to this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways, I think the polarization functions in a different way um, than some of like the, the biggest polarization around public opinion about the Chicago Teachers Union is do you have a child in the public schools or do you not? Right. Um, and by and large, parents of public school students are enormously supportive of the CTU, even when there are times when they don't necessarily agree with kind of the actions mm-hmm. that the union is taking. Um, you know, I do think there's something fundamental in, and I say this as a public school parent myself in Chicago, you know, um, that uh, you entrust your kids with a set of people <laughs> who you think are doing the right thing. You know, people by and large like their teachers. They like their kids' teachers. Um, And I do think the alignment um, of those teachers in their union with bigger fights for 
um, you know, for racial justice, for economic justice, um, for kind of things in the community. I mean, instead of this, um, you know, those fights have really kind of created a, a, a political alignment um, that again exists, I think, in a different way. I mean, this is kind of what you hear about, like the heyday of the American labor movement, right. you know, that kind of alignment. Yeah. Well, I mean, there were, there were, of course, though, like some tensions that came up during COVID, like with school closures and stuff like that, like we saw around the country. And I don't think Chicago was immune to that, right? So I was curious about that and kind of like how some of those fissures have been healed or if there are still tensions that have arisen from that. And and then I just wanted to say, like, I do think the Chicago Teachers Union is, you know, kind of an extraordinary example of like what we might call like bargaining for the common good, right? Like a union that is interested in things that are outside of its sort of the purview and the direct interests of its members ostensibly. And it seems like we've probably talked about it on the show before, but when you look at like the LA teachers or Mm -hmm. some of the, you know, kind of semi wildcat strikes in Arizona and, you know, West Virginia, like they were also inspired by some of this thinking and I think some of that has has lasted and imprinted on on those unions. So just credit to, I think, Chicago teachers for that. But but yeah, if, if you could address like the COVID question and if there are other times when that alignment hasn't been perfect. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, like going back to that question of where does the polarization exist, I think it's a mistake to think that public school parents, by and large, weren't lo- like supportive, super majorities of them supportive of the CTU's actions that they were taking. Um, during the pandemic. There was a loud and vocal minority, uh, largely white, um, largely upper income, um, that uh, was, you know, and I think this was true in a lot of different places. I would also say that, you know, as somebody who is doing work with a lot of different unions and organizations around the country at various points during the pandemic, um, there was a lot of, there were a lot of unionists around the country looking to CTU to see what they would do, how sharp the action was mm-hmm. that they would take. I think UTLA in Los Angeles as well. Um, yeah. And I think that that, you know, that, that is again, like another testament to part of what you were just saying, Tammy too, is the leadership that they've taken. Um, but I really never saw that much daylight. I don't think those shifts mm-hmm. have like, I don't think there's been a big shift there. And there's certainly been, you know, the CTU is still, you know, if you do public polling, it is the most popular organization in the city of Chicago, you know, by leaps and bounds. Um, is it maybe less po- marginally less popular now than it was six years ago? I think that might be true, but there's a natural ebb and flow um, to some of that, that, you know, due to the calendar, due to whatever is happening on the ground, you know, how sharp those issues are. Um, you know, I think one thing that's important to remember, Chicago is a city that is kind of, it's relatively evenly racially divided. It's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, 30% black, 30% Latino, 30% white, maybe a little less than 10% Asian. Uh, the public school population is um, at this point probably 88% black and brown. And so those parents have a specific, you know, um, they they have a specific level of trust and, again, political alignment with the CTU um, that's hard to see if you kind of look at some of the overall numbers, look at some of the, some of the people who end up getting featured in the media um, when it comes to, you know, any sort of conflict or disagreement. I was curious if we could talk a little bit about the criminal justice, the criminal legal piece in Brandon Johnson's mm-hmm. election. It seemed to me that like the, those were kind of the two main things, like the sort of obvious education stuff because of like 
the, the professional involvement of those candidates. But then this whole thing about, you know, what is this future coming out of, you know, 2020? And um, it seems like Johnson had started kind of from a defund position, but walked it back a little bit. So I was kind of curious about that. And um, but also just this issue of like, to my understanding, like Illinois still has felony possession, like it goes pretty hard um, on a lot of the criminal charges that we have seen actually softened in other areas of the country. So it seems like he was interested in addressing that. So how did the criminal legal stuff play out? I think there are two. I mean, you know, we just had a midterm election. We just had a gubernatorial election where the Republicans attempted to make it a referendum on bail reform. Um, Illinois' legislature last year voted to end cash bail um, in Illinois, voted on, you know, a huge package of criminal justice reforms, um, maybe one of the most progressive packages, you know, in the, that's been passed in the country. Um, the Republicans tried to campaign on this statewide and were sending out mailers and commercials, you know, about crime. And it's interesting to me that it, it feels like some of the people on the Vallis team didn't get the memo that not just voters in Chicago, but voters statewide actually rejected that um, pretty resoundingly um, in November. They rejected the use of, you know, getting rid of cash bail, of criminal justice reform as a barrier. You know, it's something I saw with some of the um, some of the kind of more conservative uh, city council members in Chicago who would say things, you know, at one point relatively late, um, state's attorney Kim Fox sent out an email supporting uh, Brandon. And I saw a couple of the city council members crowing about it. Um, and I, I wondered if they remembered that Kim Fox um, was reelected um, in 2020 with overwhelming support. Um, in the city of Chicago. It's a little bit odd to think of the electorate that has shown itself to be open to different approaches um, to dealing with public safety and criminal justice, um, to think that they were going to flip, um, you know, around this one issue. Um, and she's the county prosecutor, we should say, right? Yeah, yeah she's a progressive like, one. She's a progressive just to prosecutor. For like, yeah. And much like Krasner, you know, yeah. it's pretty popular. Um, yeah. And she was she was elected for the first time in 2016, kind of the beginning of that wa- this modern wave right, right. Um, yeah. of progressive prosecutors. Yeah, and I, I that that seemed like I that's another thing I think like you know sort of having your perspective on it is very helpful because um, from the perspective of somebody who's watching from a national media landscape, right? Like the story out there seems to be right now. Well, you know, what really screwed over Vallis wasn't that Johnson was a good candidate, right? It wasn't any of this organizing stuff that the left is going to tell you about. It's because he got in bed with the fraternal order of police and he (laughs) basically said that he, you know, like that was a little bit too far, right? And that the voters of Chicago are generally, like they are concerned about crime or whatever. They're not going to support a real defund candidate or an abolitionist candidate for that matter, but, you know, they also are going to say, well, we're not Republicans. So we're not going to support this guy right. who is a closet Republican. Right. Like that's sort of the national narrative. Is that true in any sort of way? Because to me, it seemed it didn't really quite pass the smell test in that like this one gaffe would be so determinative. Right. And that it seemed to sort of mirror too much of the type of pundit brain. Like I am in the same boat. I do the same job as these people. I write 
just as many words a week and I am always bereft for, or I'm always at a loss. And sometimes, you know, you just let it rip and, you know, sometimes it follows the same brain patterns as the last thing that you wrote. And, it, you know, you, there's not much you can do about that except, you know, install a new brain every time. I can't do that. You know, things are st- slowly deteriorating and like, you know, certain ruts are getting deeper and like it just happens. But it seemed, at least from my observation, to be a little bit too much, a little bit too perfect of an explanation. What is the gap little... you're talking about, Jay? Can you just explain? Well, why, why, why don't you tell us, Alex? Yeah, like what, what is the gap specifically? Because this is something that like where Vallis basically gave a speech, I think, right, in support of the FOP or at the FOP, FOP being Fraternal Order of Police. So like, yeah, what, Alex, why don't you tell us right? about us? Yeah, yeah, the police union, yeah. I mean, I actually don't think there was any particular, I mean, uh, Paul Vallis, part of the challenge of going up against Paul Vallis is there wasn't one central gaffe. The guy was just like, it was a, it was almost Trumpian in that every possible thing he did was something that was a little bit outrageous and a target. And so it became a little bit overwhelming. I mean, he was speaking (laughs) at dinners with the organization Awake Illinois, you know, that's been leading this kind of, you know, like, you know, anti-trans, anti-kid effort, you know, around school boards in Illinois. Um, He was a consultant for the Fraternal Order of Police in their last contract negotiations with the city. Um, His ties go very deep. Um, and, and, and I do think that there is like, again, you know, it's important to keep in mind, like, I don't, you know, Brandon Johnson ended up getting something a little over 52% of the vote. Um, I think it, 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 uh, it's, ju- it's going to get certified tomorrow. Um, I believe, and I, I'm, I'm not going to say that that means 52% of the voters, um, in Chicago are died in the wall abolitionists. Right, right. Um, but it does mean that there's a set of people who are really open to other solutions. I would also point out, we actually saw a poll that came out the day after the election from the Vera Institute for Justice of Chicago voters. I'm not sure why it came out the day after, but it showed that actually about 60% of voters were open to um, things that attack the root causes of violence and open to, you know, it was, it was something like 60% supporting um, you know, action at the root causes where 30% thought the best idea was to just add more cops and more cops. So I do think like we've hit, I think the other side has hit a wall on that issue. You know, I'm not saying that's like universal, um, but certainly when you have a candidate that has the kind of movement, the kind of field and organizing infrastructure that Brandon Johnson had, um, I'm sure there are other candidates who couldn't have withstood it, um, who might have had a similar issue agenda. Um, I also think when we think about public safety and a left approach to public safety, um, I think it's like a real oversimplification to say he started as a defund candidate and walked it back. Um, I think that a lot of the kind of activists and organizers on the ground um, who come out of groups like the Black Youth Project 100, who come out of a lot of different efforts really rooted in, in Black youth around the city, um, were really engaged in this campaign. Um, and I think that it's important to, you know, I've done a lot of electoral politics um, through unions, with United Working Families, with the Working Families Party in other ways. I worked for Bernie in 2020. Um, and this is an example, you know, I, I try to explain this to people and it's hard to, it's hard to really um, get it through sometimes, but Brandon is of that movement. You know, Brandon was a rank and file teacher, rank and file teachers union member. You know, he was he was the person who had organized the four thousand person rally on day three of the strike. You know, 
Um, he wasn't the but most But then how convenient. would you describe then the evolution of his position or what exactly the position is with regard to defund? I mean, I know defund, you know, whatever, it's simplification, but also we need to use some words to describe what's going on and what he believes about law enforcement. I think so- part of it is like a path toward a different way to explain that. I do think, you know, like I'm a person who agrees with defund, agrees with kind of pretty sharp pieces of that rhetoric. But I think of that as being, there is like a degree to which it's a rhetorical dead end. You know, we're not talking about anything aspirational. We're not talking about kind of what we actually want to see in the world. Um, And I think that there's always going to be in a political campaign, um, especially this heated of a campaign and one with such a microscope on it, you know, there's going to be adjustments to the language that people use. But I do think like this is an instance in which there is very little daylight between the candidate, now the mayor-elect, and the movements that elected him. And I say that like there is less daylight than anywhere else that I've seen. Like he really is, you know, thoroughly kind of a part of those movements and has been, you know, an important organizer in them too. Yeah. It's, you know, not to get too far afield, but I, I don't know what the future of whatever that uh, or however that is going to be described is is right now. Um, it seems like the problem with defund as an idea is that right now, whether cities want it or not, there is going to be defunding just because these places are going to have less police officers because they can't recruit enough, right? Um, and so, like, if your goal was to go from, like, let's say, 2000 police officers down to like 1800 and you're any major American city, like, guess what? Like you're going to get that. Right. And you have it right now. And I think that the problem with this idea of defund is that now it is very easy to retroactively point to any type of problem and just say, well, you got what you wanted. Right. And that, um, that all these problems still exist. And therefore now, of course, that's a bad faith reading of what the argument is, right? But I also just think that, like, in terms of just pure funding and pure number of police, that is kind of, like, the ground is, is it, it's, like, happening anyway, and it's it's not particularly fertile for any type of real critique. Um, and I don't, I don't know, like, I, I just think that, like, there is people just have to do a very careful dance around this type of question right now. Now, I don't think that it really matters in any sort of electoral way necessarily. Right. Because I think that regardless of what people say about like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like Mandela Barnes or something like that. And he's like, Oh, he didn't win because he said the words deep. Like, I just don't believe that type of stuff. I Mm -hmm. think it's a ludicrous. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, like when you're talking about public safety there, like it, there needs to be some sort of, way to describe one's position without just being defensive and evasive all the time. And it seems right. like in some ways, like that's, that's basically where we're at right now, right? Like, whereas people yeah. like, don't want to say the word, but they don't want to say anything. And so then they talk about, I'm reading a book right now, actually, which I find very interesting and compelling, but um, you know, it's actually also from somebody from Chicago, um, Cedric Johnson, after it, the book is like after Black Lives Matter. And his mm-hmm. phrase is like, we should abolish the conditions, right? Like um, mm-hmm. the, and I think I find that to be great for the left, but I also find it somewhat unsatisfying as well because you're just like, okay, like, you know, like, what, like, what are, like, well, what are sure, we talking right? about? Of now, the one thing I appreciate about that book, it is very clearly in favor. It It is very clear in its, in the idea that some state, 
form of uh, power is necessary and that the police are probably necessary and that abolition is silly. Like, they, like he does not equivocate about that at all, right? But I don't know. I, I just think that there needs to be some sort of pragmatic vision that is put out there right now because like we're kind of in this like soft space and i just don't actually know what any of these candidates are talking about on the left when it comes to policing anymore because it does feel evasive in a lot of ways i'm not saying brandon johnson was at all right because i I, I actually i don't know maybe he was maybe he wasn't like this is just like something where but i do think that that is that is going to start happening soon because people are a terrified because they actually do believe the national narrative about saying those words, you know, the three words, you can't say the three, don't say the D, DTP words or whatever, right? Um, but also because I think there is some real confusion about what to say, right? Or what yeah. even the position is. So I don't know. That's I, th- I think there's, a, you know, the example I would give, and I think there are some lessons to learn here too. You know, we've had this ongoing campaign in Chicago called Treatment Not Trauma. Yeah. And that is the campaign yeah. to to respond to emergency calls. It's not just to respond to emergency calls with mental health professionals and social workers. It also involves, you know, reopening public mental health clinics that Rahm Emanuel closed. It's a much broader kind of call um, for funding of services. Um, And I think that's something that Brandon talked a lot about in his campaign. Mm -hmm. It's something that has enormous popularity. And so I do think there's a degree to which we can, we can, figure out some of these paths. I think that's the kind of, you know, first step solution that really does have a lot of support across the board. Yeah. And so we've got to think about what, and, and is going to have a real impact, you know, um, every, every emergency call that's for a mental health emergency that doesn't get responded to with a person with a gun is one less call where there is a chance, you know, of kind right. of the most extreme kind of violence. I think that particular pivot too is like, is very popular in other areas of the country. And we've seen that mm-hmm. in initiatives and elections yeah. because obviously people see the drug crisis, they're connecting it to the houselessness crisis. So I think the sort of, because already embedded in defund was this idea that you were saying, Jay, which is like the abolish the conditions, like implicitly, right? Even though like the rhetoric of it may not be as clear, but I think the public health pivot seems like the right one. Yeah, although I don't like, I am convinced by what, Cedric Johnson argues that like the public facing expressions of defund did not focus so much on that, but in, instead were sort of focused much more on but these, it, like I, this is an evil that we need to abolish, right? The and I think, and I think that good. we're frankly like past that now. Right. We're also in a yeah. phase like something we shouldn't lose track of is, you know, and I, I, I feel like I should knock on wood, but you know, violent crime is on the downswing right now. Right, right. And one of the dangers is that reactionaries are able to take advantage of that, just like they did in the like a Giuliani um, and mm-hmm. others did in the '90s, where much bigger societal and economic factors were driving, you know, the rise in crime. You know, the pandemic obviously was doing that over the last couple of years. And so, one of the things that I think gives some hope is that. You know, there there might be a chance here for kind of people on the more progressive end of the spectrum to take advantage of those cycles, um, in part because, you know, what's driven that is like pushing investment um, into social services, what's driven, you know, it's 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 driven in a different way. Um, so I, and I do think like that treatment, not trauma, that kind of messaging, it works mm-hmm. in almost every community. You know, yeah. we, we actually had some precincts. Um, where organizations put it on the ballot in Chicago and it was getting 97% support. 
Right. I can see that. And I mean, look, here in the Bay Area, obviously, where the only political issue is homelessness, um, the question would then just be like, well, what is the treatment you're talking about? Right. And so if it's, you know, compelled institutionalization in California, then that is not so different. I would agree with a lot of the sort of activist people than um, the incarceration, you know, like Mm -hmm. that, that is what it means here. But if you can set up some sort of alternative to that, then, you know, I think that it would be very, very popular. The thing that the two things that people hate are, you know, a the idea that you're going to jail all these people. That's very unpopular. And the other thing that people hate is the idea that you're not going to do anything about it, you know, which is also (laughs) wildly unpopular. Well, I would add to that, like a part of the policy agenda. And again, this is a broader movement policy agenda that's existed for several years. And something that Brandon Johnson talked a lot about was a campaign called Bring Chicago Home, which is a campaign um, to tax uh, residential real estate transactions of a million dollars or more um, in order to fund, you know, uh, something close to $75 million worth of homeless services and housing services. And so I do think that there are these things interact together, and I do think there's a logic that they can lay out. I'm not going to try to pretend that the average voter was thinking about these specific, you know, <laughs> this policy agenda um, on their way to the ballot box, but these are also initiatives that have been really popular, and you can't do them separately. I think that's something else we should yeah. take from Chicago. It's, it is a question of trying to do trying to put out everything that you want um, because people can see through bullshit and can see if you're focused on one issue, they're going to say you can't fix that on its own. You actually have to fix a dozen other things. Um, And just to have somebody who was willing to lay that out and say that that was an approach that he was going to try, um, I think is a really meaningful thing politically. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Treatment, not trauma. I think that would work. Maybe I'm just like overly sensitive to the word trauma where it like, you know, rubs me the wrong way because I'm an immigrant and I'm just like, well, what is trauma? You know, (laughs) it doesn't exist. (laughs) Um, I don't mean that, but you know, some people are preconditioned to just be like, I don't know, trauma, come on, you're not traumatized. Um, Okay. So moving on. um, (laughs) One thing we want to talk to you about is the other thing that you do, right? Which is that you are the executive director at In These Times, and we wanted to talk a little bit about left labor media. This is something that Tammy obviously is very knowledgeable and entrenched in, me a little bit less so, but much more than I used to be like, I don't know, five years ago or something like that. So um, I don't know. Uh, like, what what do you see it as? Earlier in the podcast, not this podcast, but an earlier podcast, you know, Tammy and I were talking about it a little bit and talking about, well, what, what are people going to do, right? Because obviously, the center piece for the last however many years was the Bernie campaign, right? Um, that was sort of what everybody talked about. It was a rallying cry. It was the way in to bring in new people. Like, what, what do you see? What, what do you see as the future for sort of left labor publications? <laughs> that's a, that's I'm, a big I'm holding question. Bet my in, I'm holding my investment dollars right now. Yeah. <laughs> you have a you have a PowerPoint you'd like to forward to me? You know, right? <laughs> yeah, let me let me give you my pitch deck right now um, and see. I I did want to just take a second before we shift into that, if that's right. okay, to kind of like backtrack a little bit because I do think it's important to like you had Mandela Barnes's name had come up. I do think it's important to situate Chicago in a set of other election victories that happened um, two Tuesdays ago, 
um, and that is, you know, the victory in the Wisconsin Supreme Court, right. um, where the Democrat, you know, frankly, won over the Republican. And that was a lot of that fight was hearing from people on the doors. And the question they got was, which one's the Democrat? Okay. That Janet, sure. Yes, we're going <laughs> to vote for her um, in part because the Republicans decided to run a retread who had already lost in a prior Supreme Court right. election. Somebody who was very close to Scott Walker and a big Trump supporter. Um, and you yes. had a big youth turnout. You had an outsized you know, turnout of women voters um, and a 10-point victory um, yeah. you know, to win I mean, a majority Roe of Democratic. very large, obviously, here. Yeah. yeah. And and that was a question that was really a question around abortion and abortion rights and yeah. and people's unwillingness to do that. So that was a big that got some national attention, um, you know, uh, but there were also a couple other elections in the Midwest that I just want to touch on for a second. One was in Kansas City, Missouri, um, where a group called KC Tenants um, that has been doing some of the sharpest and I think most militant and interesting tenant organizing of renters, pushing for, um, you know, supports for renters in the city, uh, pushing for, you know, against evictions and for for uh, rent control. Um, they actually won primary. They have two of their members who are going to be going into the general election for city council, very likely to win the general. And you all of a sudden have in Kansas City, Missouri, the most progressive city council um, that's ever existed um, in that place. Across that state in St. Louis, Missouri, um, you actually have uh, a member of the DSA who is the president of the Board of Aldermen, the president of their city council, um, she won in a special election last year. Um, she actually ran for re-election unopposed this year. The kind of uh, business class decided not even to put up a fight there. They put up a fight in the city council races, and progressives won a majority on the city council. <clears throat> and so in St. Louis, you now have... And and part of this is actually the story, you know, it's related to the story of Brandon Johnson, too. It's how do you build a political coalition that can be led by progressives um, that has elements of kind of the center that are following the lead of progressives on the left? It's not something we've had in American electoral politics um, in generations. And it's something that's asserting itself in the Midwest in really critical places. There was also, um, we should say, the... Um... I think the repeal of right to work in Michigan at the end of March too, right? So there's been a yeah. lot of interesting stuff that's been going on. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, I mean, you can connect to that. You can say the new leadership, you know, election in the UAW, which obviously isn't, right. you know, political in the same way. Um, but there's, you know, there's something happening. And I do think particularly across the Midwest um, where there is not just a reaction to right wing overreach, um, but really, I think something broader, you know, that has some broader possibilities to it. So I just wanted to, which kind of segues in a little bit to this conversation. I was, was going to say, it's like an amazing dodge of the question. <laughs> yeah. I, I, am, I am a Midwest exceptionalist. And, I think yeah, the Midwest loves is the Midwest the best. so much. So. Did you grow yeah. up there? I, I did. I was born in Detroit. I live in Chicago. I lived in New York for a while. But, you know, it's New York. It's, it's not up to snuff. It's a great That's calling funny. card. It is, you know. Yeah. Everyone, everyone else you hear from is, you know, from two places, mm -hmm. or yeah. really just DC or New York. Um, and so, yeah. yeah. And well, that's a little bit of what. So in these times, um, which I, I kind of took on the role of executive director in the last couple of months, and it's unique in the world of left publications in that it is housed uh, 
in a place that's not New York. There are others too, you know, the progressive uh, labor notes, there are other publications, you know, that exist outside of there. Um, but it's very much kind of a Chicago institution and yeah. a labor institution and a left institution all at the same time. Um, and that's something that I think is really interesting and provides a lot of space for potential growth um, in the future. I mean, I, I think that we're seeing, you know, I, what you were saying, Jay, about the Bernie campaigns, that's something that's on my mind every day. You know, what is the, what is the kind of like organizing center? What is the heart um, of what's growing? We just had uh, in Chicago this past weekend, the YDSA, the youth wing of the Democratic Socialists had their annual conference um, here in Chicago. And it does make me think, you know, what happens with the DSA, uh, which I'm a member of, um, what happens with the DSA, you know, without a Bernie campaign for president? Right. And, um, what happens to all of these groups? Is and he so going to run again, though? Because I kind of feel like he's going to run again. But well, anyway. He would be doing it. He should just do it as a favor to all the left publications you know seriously because the book tour i don't know anyway alex i'm sure yeah, you have inside yeah, in, in information these times that you cannot share but, yeah. there's, a there's a lot of podcasts super pack yeah there's a lot of podcasts out there that like, that need your help yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. Bern, yeah bernie's super pack is like revive left media super yeah, pack. yeah it's really just up a trap house can put half their patreon <laughs> money into the super right. pack then, yeah i mean well that's i mean i think that's a real thing and i'm not going to pretend to know what Bernie is going to do or what he isn't going to do. Um, you know, I, I do think he's, he's, but he's done a lot um, over the last couple election cycles. Um, and I do think, you know, whether he did run again or not, you know, there, it, it will, all, the best it will do is kind of like mask or paper over, you know, challenges that we have, you know, right. in these times was started in 1976. And the time that it was started in, I think, has a lot of parallels to now, um, or also like the time we're in now is a little bit of a closing of that chapter of like American history. Um, it really was intended as a newspaper that was going to help inform and grow a movement for democratic socialism. Um, what ended up happening was it was born at the at the beginning of neoliberalism. Um, and right now we are somewhere in the twilight of that. We don't know what comes next. We don't know, um, you know, the bigger economic forces um, that are going to come after that. And so I actually think, you know, right now on the left in media, we have to think as big as possible. Um, you know, we, uh, I think we see all the time the hollowness that corporate media, like there, you, you both as kind of longtime journalists, um, and I've got plenty of friends who who work in media in different ways, um, but we have an economy that's propped up by, um, uh, you know, the imagination of some wealthy people um, and a set of financing that doesn't actually make sense at the end of the day, and so I actually think that left media needs to look at opportunities, you know, not to supplant entirely corporate and mainstream media, um, but to see opportunity and try to take it where it exists, um, to be able to kind of tell stories to people and explain the world to people. We have a lot of people who are hungry for information who can't get it um, from anywhere. They're not watching broadcast news, you know, who right. watches broadcast news. Um, they're not reading newspapers. <laughs> who does that? You know, um, I, I'm not sure. Where are they getting it? From TikTok? They're getting it from somewhere. And so I do think there's like a big opportunity um, for left media that's actually connected to 
you know, to youth movements, to people on the ground, um, to actually like take up some of that space um, in a way that that might have seemed uh, much less realistic 20 years ago. You know, the media like reinvents itself like every six to 12 months, it feels like now, you know, there are different pivots in all these different directions. Um, and so I do think there's like a lot of opportunity out there, hopefully. So Jay, I'd like you to invest as much, um, you know, <laughs> as you've got um, to invest in that. What's your TikTok NFTs. channel like? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's probably a lot of opportunity right now too, and there's you know there's a lot of stuff that is happening, and I I I actually feel I feel okay about it. I just think it's interesting how much of it is centered right now, or you know, I think if you took the ecosystem of everybody who would identify on the left and especially among young people, like the amount of people who are just like centered around it through video games, for example, is like massive, right? Like you have Hassan Piker, you have Mm -hmm. the Chapo guys who, you know, like their core is through, you know, a lot of stuff is through video games, a big thing that they talk about a lot. And um, I don't know. I think that there's gatekeeping that type of stuff is so silly, right? And that it actually is kind of exciting in a lot of ways, to me at least, uh, that that stuff exists. Um, and I think for sort of serious conversations, that's something that the left has always been very good at, maybe to its own detriment. <laughs> you know, like long, serious types of conversations. And so I, I don't think that there's going to be a... Uh, lack there it's just kind of like well okay what do you do without bernie i don't don't know the answer to that either right um i don't think though that the question of uh economic precarity or any of that is obviously going to go away at any point and so you know it's just kind of trying to find audiences in some sort of way i don't really know though i don't know the answer to that (laughs) question uh at all yeah yeah i mean like to think about Hassan on Twitch, to think about Chapo and what they've done on how to fund that. And right. I think there's other examples, you know, um, at, at kind of like relatively large and relatively small scale. You know, I think of, you know, what, I don't know if you guys listen to The Dig um, and Daniel right. Denver. And that's, mm-hmm. that's more of an NPR. That's the Terry Gross of the left um, <laughs> to me. Um, but there's a real value in like his ability to bring a bunch of, you know, like relatively for a project like that, a lot of financial support, and then use that to try to broaden out that audience and kind of give them um, different things and different ways to interact with it. Um, so I do, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the path is. And I'll be honest, like, I don't know. I've never actually looked at TikTok. I'm like, I've never downloaded the app. I just look at videos that people post on Twitter of TikTok. Like, I don't, you know, Hassan, again, you know, I'm not, I'm not logging on to Twitch um, to watch it. I'm excited that, you know, that he exists and that some of those things exist. I do think you also raise like with Hassan and Chapo, like there's a very gendered um, audience, you know, like there's a, there's a lot of things that are gendered about that audience, which is important, but I think we've got to figure out like, what are the ways that you're communicating um, to different kind of like big constituencies and groups of people, especially young people, you know? Um, and I think that's a way to, to get to frankly, like a, a, a majority young men, you know, an audience of majority young men who are playing video games a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got to think about like, what is the equivalent in different places too? It's yeah. not going to look the same. It's a know? problem that every media company has right now. Like, uh, you know, I think everybody's very quietly happy that Trump is back 
right? But it was the same question. <laughs> so like, we're in a fraction, we're in a decentralizing media environment that is decentralizing at a rate that is much faster than the people who are working at these places will ever tell you it is. Um, in every industry, I mean, I, I just think about like basketball, for example, right? Like it used to be there was four basketball podcasts and there was like a big TV show. And way back in the day, it was like Peter Vesey writing Hoop Du Jour column in the New York Post. That was about it. Now you have 2,000 to 20,000 basketball podcasts and a lot of them are financially viable. A lot of them are very popular. Some of them I haven't even heard of that are popular, you know? And uh, that at least has like, the season or whatever and you can sort of string it along but um yeah i don't think anyone has these answers right now or else they would do it you know the only thing that seems to work right now is intense personal branding and subscribers but you know that's not the most pleasant experience sometimes and it also it's a very much winner take all type of thing so i don't know yeah that feels uh that doesn't feel like a path forward it feels like uh we're in the interregnum of personal brand building and we will see <laughs> what happens after that. Yeah. Is there a particular part of in these times though, that you're, you're excited to like ramp up, you know, because if people haven't seen it, it's obviously online, but the print product is, is really beautiful and is a traditional magazine in the sense that it has front of the book, back of the book. It has features, long form, you know, feature investigations, essays. So yeah, what what do you think like you want to do with it, magazine wise? Well, first I'll say you can find us at inthesetimes.com. You can subscribe, <laughs> we'll you can become a sustainer. Now. Yeah, please do. That would be great. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I I think there's been a lot of really good I th- I think part of it is to figure out how to do um you know, web content and a print magazine at the same time, kind of maximize both of those things. You know, I'm most interested and excited you know we've in the last year year and a half there's been two cover stories on you know amazon organizing like globally and locally um there's been a lot of coverage of the starbucks um movement and i'm really interested in digging deeper because i think part of this is the history of in these times is a set of really in-depth labor coverage that is not just um cheerleading um, right. for labor and for unions, but really some kind of like critical analysis um, of what's happening and how to move that forward. I think that we could use some more layered, you know, there's been a lot of excitement about union organizing, union activity over the last few years. And I think that that deserves a much deeper look um, and, a, you know, much deeper attention. And I think that's the kind of thing that frankly, Ken, it's not going to, you know, we're not going to get millions of page views tomorrow off of deepening our labor coverage, but I think it's the kind of thing that can really pay dividends um, over the coming years. Great. Well, um, Alex, thanks for coming on. Um, For anyone who wants to support the show, it's goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash TTSG pod. For $5 a month, you'll have access to our Discord server and you'll just, you know, help me and Tammy's lavish lifestyle a little (laughs) bit more. (laughs) Spend more money on subscriptions to left podcasts and Twitch streams <laughs> and publications. Um, I did. I, I think I told everyone I did like a subscriptions purge, and uh, you know oh, most yeah. of the stuff I kept was all stuff that was stuff on the left. Partly out of you know they need the money, but also because you know it tends to be the type of stuff that I read more so than like 
Well, I don't know. I was like paying. I don't know how much the Wall Street Journal is a month, but I was paying that, and I'd like never read it, you know. And so, um, and uh, so yeah, you could add us to your subscription. Burden is burden. Burden is a rough word to use. There. Privilege. But, privilege. You subscription can... privilege. <laughs> so Jay, you've got space to subscribe to in these times now. I do. You know what? I'm yeah. going to do it today. You've convinced <laughs> me. Um, and uh, yes, if you'd like to get in touch with us, it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can reach us on Twitter at TTSGpod. Thank you. And until next week, uh, we will see you. Yeah.